Welcome to The Truth In His Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I have the privilege, the privilege, not the privilege, the privilege of um, speaking with the executive director of the birthplace of American railroading, the B&O Railroad Museum. Please welcome Chris Holden. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm finally, we're able to make this happen. Um, <laughs> as, I, as I was talking a little bit, um, this is, we're going back almost 20 years at this point, but um, part of my uh, high school experience was related to the museum. I, I had my, um, it's either my junior or senior prom there, and it, it was a magical night in a magical location. So really one of the um, landmarks marks and, and hallmarks of Baltimore. So thank you for um, the work that you're doing and, and being in that executive director role right now. And it's great. Ah, excellent. Well, I'm glad you had a good senior prom and a good memory. As I think I just told you, we had several proms here this spring. So it's always fun. Always fun to see everybody dressed up. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to look at any of those pictures. Like the fashion choices <laughs> 20 years ago, I, I, I feel like I was wearing a, a silver cummerbund and I had like long hair. It didn't work. It didn't work. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> So I, I gave the the literal copy and paste um, kind of like introduction, but I want to give you the uh, the opportunity to share with us those vital stats. And um, if you would uh, describe your professional journey, because my understanding is not only it's been a few other locations here. I believe the aquarium is in there and that mix. So tell us about your your journey and what ultimately led you to choo choo choosing the Baltimore Railroad to be an railroad museum. Well, you know exactly. Well, since we're going to have our railroad puns, I think I've always been on track for you know, <laughs> being a railroad museum. But no, my uh, I've had sort of interesting career paths as I went through. I uh, actually started out my career working for an, for a public relations agency, which led to an environmental television show which led to doing uh, environmental work in Washington, D.C. I worked for uh, two different trade associations, uh, one representing the State Departments of Transportation. And then I moved over to the Transportation Research Board of the National Academy of Sciences, where I did research. Then uh, I was a contractor. Then uh, I worked for a national uh, nonprofit conservation organization where I had climbed my way to my perch, but did a lot of work on community economic development as part of it. Then I uh, jumped off my perch and went over to the National Aquarium. And from there, uh, uh, a person, a headhunter said to me, you know, the B&O Railroad Museum is looking for a new executive director. And it actually makes sense. I've worked for a lot of nonprofits. I have a transportation background, which I think a lot of people didn't realize. And, you know, I've done, uh, because of my nonprofit background, fundraising, legislative work. And then the aquarium gave me the destination management focus. Right. So it all, and then the community economic development, uh, given where we're, you know, located and some of the things we're trying to do at the museum, it all made fit. And um, so that's, and so my motto when I talk to uh, folks that are on a sort of a career journey is I always say, you know what, you need to stay open because you just never know what's going to be the right fit. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as I, we were talking a little bit, and, and thank you for, for walking us through in a very brief way the, uh, your, your journey to, to where you're at now. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, really, it's really interesting when you mentioned the, the headhunter, having someone who 
can have an idea of what your career looks like on, on paper. And it's like, you know, you could be doing this, right? And this is how these dots connect. And um, I had a person recently run that by me for uh, my, the business side of what I'm growing. And they were like, so you have a data and analytics background and you're doing an art podcast. It's like, you know, you're kind of in this STEAM place, not even STEM, but in STEAM. Yes. And I'm like, oh, I should start looking at it from that standpoint. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting taking where that background is at. Like I've worked in nonprofit development, higher ed. Those have been the industries and kind of seeing like where that would be a fit at in that next stage. But the destination management component, that that cultural piece of it, yes. that's that's the interesting one because uh, I, I had a conversation yesterday. That's where the networks are actually at. That's where you're meeting people and exchanging yes, ideas. So could you share with us for, for those who are who may be interested in, in coming to Baltimore and, and checking out the BNO Railroad Museum? Could you regale us with what the mission is of the, the museum and ultimately what about that mission really resonated with you? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. And and just before I do that, I will say if you want to get the destination management piece, Robin, come over here at the BO. You're always welcome in any capacity. <laughs> but uh, the BO Railroad Museum, I mean, we're, you know, our official mission is to preserve the physical legacy of American railroading and to educate the general public on the social, cultural, and economic impacts of the railroad on American life. And so, as you said, we are the birthplace. You can visit other train museums, but there is only one birthplace and that's here in Baltimore. And what I like to tell people is that really every piece of our collection or our building is connected to a person, place, or significant event in American history. We tell the story of America through the lens of the railroad. And I find that to be completely fascinating. Yeah, that's that, that. When I was doing the research, that's what really like stuck out, and it's like I felt like I, I learned something that you know a lot of times, um, and I think the 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 genesis and the the ethos around this podcast is is uncovering those things that are sitting there, they're accessible, you can find them out, but people don't really know that, and I didn't didn't know that um, about the museum, so that's um, a really great uh, factoid. Um, so. For for those who've not been there, d- describe it. Because when we were talking beforehand, you said it's like huge. So give us the what if someone were to walk in there, what are they going to see? Like what what is that? <laughs> so the you know you walk into the BNO. I mean, for starters, we are um, a national historic landmark. So you come to the birthplace, and the very first thing you're going to see is the beautiful 1884 Baldwin Roundhouse. And it's considered to be the Cathedral of Roundhouses because it's 135-foot high ceiling. Uh, It's over an acre in space, just the roundhouse itself. Uh, It's got the full – it's magnificent. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. It's where you held your prom. It's got an amazing working turntable, so you can come see a working turntable demonstration. You can come be the person that pushes a huge car on the turntable. But it's also where we house the first 100 years of American railroading. So it's where you see things like the William Mason. It's a fan-favorite locomotive that um, William Mason pulled Lincoln – 
safely to his inauguration when he was under threat of assassination. He snuck wow. through Baltimore at night, and the William Mason is the locomotive that pulled him. It's not a replica. It's the William Mason. So that's what I mean. Every car has a story. And But we have what a lot of people don't realize is we have 40 acres. We have seven buildings on our property. So we're a lot bigger than people realize. We have the North Car Shop, which is the second 200 years of American work, where you'll see things like we have the Central New Jersey 1000. It's the very first uh, diesel locomotive ever. I mean, ever, right? So it's, wow. you know, we like to say we have the first, the best, the last, the only. <laughs> we have the, um, the number 51, which was the first streamlined diesel electric engine, which was made when, in 1937 when the airline industry was just starting. And the railroads were like, uh-oh. So they <laughs> built an engine that would not need to be switched out as often, could go further because the b was luxury passenger. So that's what I mean. You start looking at it going, oh, okay, this was when the airline industry was starting. So there's always a connection to mm-hmm. something that's happening in American life. And I think that's just fascinating. We also have the very first mile of commercial track ever laid in the country. So you can ride our passenger rail and go out and see where the first stone was ever laid. When you take that out, you will pass. We built the first mile stable a couple of years ago for the Baltimore City Mounted Police Unit. You can get off there and see the horses, if you, you know, and kids love that. We also have our restoration facility, which is where we do all the amazing cosmetic particularly cosmetic restoration on our cars. And you can see some of the old tools. It's got the largest paint booth in the mid-Atlantic. So, I mean, we go really deep. There's a ton to do, you know. And you can also see one of our newest exhibits is the Bank of America Model Train Gallery, which is just incredible. It's an incredible display of Baltimore. Our anchor model is an incredible display of Baltimore City. You've got to come see it because it's a true tribute. I mean, like, you know, uh, the Orioles, Camden Yards, it's like you look at it, it's the game in 1997 when the the Orioles beat the Seattle Mariners. It's got, you know, Pimlico with the Preakness when Silver Charm in 97, 97 was kind of the year it was based off of, (laughs) you know, one. It's got, but I mean, the detail is exquisite. So there's something for everybody. If you can't find something here, then you're not going to find it anywhere. I I love it. You're you're selling a ticket. You're selling a ticket. I I love that. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, being able to walk through it and I'm one of those people because um definitely an advocate for for Baltimore culture the, the whole gamut and and my girlfriend is is from New York and you know, the entry point to a lot of these places, these historical places, I'm kind of the entry point. I'm like, hey, let's go here and check this out. So being able to act like I know something, by the way. Hey, as you look right there at this model train set of this 1996, she's still look at me like, you don't know that. You heard that somewhere. Let me check your <laughs> podcast. Who'd you interview? <laughs> But it's 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 great and it's it's great to be able to see like things like um, I guess Baltimore Arcana, if you will, not Americana, but Baltimore Arcana of of seeing I just coined that of seeing these these different historical events, but done in a different way. You could see it um, in a visual as a, a picture. You could see it in film, but seeing it in a, in a display is that much more interesting to me. I agree completely. And also just being, you know, so that's one way to see it, but then also just being on our grounds. I mean, they're historic grounds. I mean, so many firsts happened in Baltimore. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, we need to, you know, we need to work on this, this PR situation, Baltimore, yeah. the city of firsts. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Uh, so, so with this, since we're, we're kind of talking about different exhibits and, and it has many like interesting, the, the BNL Railroad Museum has, you know, some of the very interesting distinctions and, you know, a lot of fun facts, a lot of firsts there, um, you know, the most, the oldest and most comprehensive American railroad collection. That's, that's just right there. Um, for you, Past or, or present, what is a um, an exhibit or, or display there at the museum that's just really stuck out to be very interesting or most interesting for you? Uh, well, there's there are many. Um, I think what I will say is that uh, one of the things I find remarkable, again, is the space. So we just recently were designate, designated a National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom site. And we got that designation from the Park Service in 2021. An interesting wow. fact is that during the pandemic, our curator and archivist spent their time researching, you know, freedom seekers that may have gone through the B&O's uh, Mount Clare Station. So they discovered and documented that eight freedom seekers went through our Mount Clare Station and 24 freedom seekers used the Beacon system as a whole. And, you know, I think of the eight freedom seekers there, um, some of them are pretty well known, meaning there was more documentation, like Henry Box Brown. Uh, he shipped himself from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia in a box, a three foot box, 27 hour journey. Wow. And he went through our, you know, B&O grounds. Uh, William and Ellen Kraft went from Macon, Georgia up to Philadelphia. She was very light skinned. He was very dark skinned and they were married. And she dressed up not only as, you know, a different race, but a different sex. She dressed up as a disabled white male and then had, you know, kind of a harrowing journey. Yeah. Um, uh, Solomon Northrup. Uh, he, you know, it's kind of the reverse underground railroad, but I don't know if you saw 12 years a slave. He, uh, when he got tricked from New York, he was free black man in New York, got tricked, uh, to come down to Washington, DC. He went through the B&O's Montclair station. He took the train from Baltimore to DC, where he then ultimately got kidnapped, not on the train, but, you know, I guess my point being is that there's, you know, it's not just the museum, it's the hollowed grounds that we're on. Yeah. I find to be, you know, everywhere you turn, there is a story. And yeah. I just find that fascinating. Yeah, that's, it's it's just a bailiwick, I guess that's the, the, the word or have you of just so many different things that are there, different threads that can be pulled in different stories that just, you can just dive into. It's like, I, I love storytelling. I, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast, I would imagine love storytelling as well. And it just seems that the, the Railroad Museum is just one of those places that just has so many different layers. And, um, so let, let's talk about, um, so we, we have some of the, the past, we have some of the present. Let's talk about the future a little bit. Like, where do you, where do you see the future of the, the museum kind of going? And um, like for, for like the rest of, let's say, 2022, where do you, what's coming up that's really exciting for you in terms of programming? And I, and I grant it, you know, everything can go awry over the last couple of years, things can change. But in terms of planning, like, what do you, what would you like to see or what would you have in mind for the next few years, but starting off with, with, with the rest of uh, 2022? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, so the um, Underground Railroad designation I just mentioned to you, we are going to open in September. This September 2022, we're going to open a permanent exhibit that will focus on the role the physical railroad played in the Underground Railroad, because we're actually one of the only network to freedom sites that will focus on the role of the physical railroad, you know, terminology, the routes that were used, you know, like Harriet Tubman was a conductor, they had to find station masters, you know, safe houses, you know, there's a lot, you know, of interesting connections, but then also on the ingenuity of the eight freedom seekers that went through you know, our Mount Clare station, and we're actually going to house it in the Mount Clare station. So you'll be right where people nice. work. So that's, you know, that's going to be our, uh, you know, our next new thing coming up. But we're also in the process of starting to plan actively for the 200th anniversary of American railroading, which is in 2027. So we're very excited about that, starting to look at, um, you know, which restoration projects we want to do on site, but also starting to work with national organizations and statewide organizations to start looking at what types of celebrations we should do um, for the American Railroad. So that's another aspect. And then I will say thirdly, um, and that's going to take us over the next five years for sure. Right. But then uh, thirdly is we are an anchor institution in Southwest Baltimore. So we in West Baltimore. So and we take that role pretty seriously. So we want to continue. We've uh, won the mayor's the GBC mayor's award for community impact twice. Um, we just started a workforce development program. In fact, the first cohort is underway right now. They're four weeks in. And uh, exactly. And they're there. We're using our campus. We're kind of reimagining. I mean, we're an amazing museum, but we do have the 40 acres. We have a lot of space. And so we are partnering with CCBC, Community College, Baltimore County, uh, where this first cohort, they will be on our campus uh, for six months, 40 hours a week. And they will be having applied instruction in fields such as construction, restoration, you know, applicable skills, uh, facilities maintenance, because we've got seven buildings, and then track operations, because we're a yeah. heritage to rail. And they will be paid, you know, $15 an hour. And uh, then at the end, we have employers lined up to interview. So it's, and then after that, we're going to do another cohort. So it's a three-year pilot program. So we're really excited. Uh, you know, for these, you know, in this first cohort, it happens to be all men, but we're really excited for these guys and, uh, and excited to see where it goes. I mean, it's a, it's a great feedback loop and learning, but I think, you know, we, the ball, the BNO help build Baltimore and we have to kind of take our part and see what can we do. So we've yeah. also put a farmer's market in our front parking lot. Um, and so we're just trying to, you know, stay open. We can't do everything, you know, that maybe people want. But if there's a way to use, utilize our space as an asset for the community, we will. And so, you know, that's part of the programming that you're going to see from us and that you will continue to see from us. So, you know, I would say, you know, our next focus really is on the Underground Railroad, but also, um, you know, on our community work that we're doing and then planning for the 200th. And then I guess I would be remiss if I did not say that, of course, at the end of the year, we'll have Polar Express. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it's, it's great to hear uh, just just this uh, this involvement um, and this focus um, with the community work and with honoring the, the history that has happened here. And I think a lot of times we, we come into a place where 
you know, there's this 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 notion of rebranding and shifting. And with that shift and rebranding, it's interesting to go to a museum and see like, well, this is the history here. Like, what are we talking about now? Why is this not happening anymore now? And what comes to mind for me um, is the Museum of Industry. Like, you know, seeing like, oh, Bethlehem still. Well, that's not really here anymore. And kind of understanding like what Baltimore used to be. And I think having this next generation of folks going through this cohort and learning some of the trades related to um, like railroading is is important as well, because it's it's a historic industry and it says coming up on 200 years. That's something that, you know, we need to kind of keep. That is my preferred mode of transportation, by the way. Well, and you think about it, it's, um, it's a historical, you know, it's going to be 200 years old, but it's also a very, you know, thriving industry today. You know, there's almost nothing that you own that at some point did not arrive to you via freight. So right. there's a lot of you know opportunities for jobs in that in that field as well. So I I agree with you completely that um, so that's what we're trying that's what we're hoping to achieve. That's great. Uh, so I got a I got a couple questions um, related to culture. Um, since you know, as I was touching on earlier, that I, I look at the BNL Railroad Museum as one of the parts, if not one of the biggest parts, of what our culture is here in Baltimore, what have you. It's it's one of those hallmarks. It's a place that everyone should go to, should check out, and just be aware that that's baked into the fabric of what we have here in the city. So, so from your vantage point, what are some of the things that define a culture, specifically, let's say, the culture in Baltimore? So, well, let me think about that. I would say that um, attributes, you know, shared attributes. So, like, at the Vino Railroad Museum, I'll just start there and build up. You know, I like to say that we're entrepreneurial. We're kind of like the engine that could. There's another, you know, plan. But, you know, we Thank like you. to up our way. You know, we, um, I like very much a taking risk type culture, but collaborative at the same time. And, you know, honestly, I think that um, Baltimore probably resembles a lot of that culture as well. You know, I can't, I'll say two things. I can't, I'm still honestly learning the culture here in Baltimore. I would say um, Baltimore can be a little bit hard to break into at first if you're a newcomer. So uh, I'm still learning. But, you know, I really do think that Baltimore, when you look at going all the way back, Baltimore in the 1800s was the financial capital of the, you know, of the United States. I mean, everybody went through Baltimore because of the railroad and the port and, you know, the entrepreneurial merchants and, uh, Baltimore is that way today. It's very mm-hmm. entrepreneurial. It has a lot of startups. I think Baltimore uh, really should have more civic pride, as you and I were just talking about, um, as part of its culture. It shouldn't be apologizing. It should be saying, we're a city of first. Yes. You know, the history started here. You know, it's um, Baltimore had the largest population of free blacks of anywhere in the country, West Baltimore, in, you know, the in the 1800s, you know, during the Civil War time periods. Um, I learned recently from Union Baptist Church, who we have a partnership with, that, you know, really, I, um, they were explaining some of the facts about, you know, our civil rights leaders. They can, People associate them with Atlanta, but they really stood on the backs of those from Baltimore. Hmm. And you just, you, you know, you can just keep going layer after layer after layer. Baltimore was a key fabric to our country. And I think that, um, you know, we as a culture in Baltimore should take more civic pride 
not embarrass, not apologize, but be, you know, for whatever may be occurring in present day, but, you know, take pride in what we did do. Yeah. And then, you know, and then obviously there's always lessons learned. There's problems in any city and yeah. uh, you move forward. That's, that's great. We're, we're on the same page there. Um, and I, and I think, you know, that, that culture, that civic pride, and I think culture overall, like, of the dustness, the isness of things, that what our culture is, you know, has to be at the heart of what we're doing to develop. And I think what happens is, and what, and what I see from my vantage point is that instead of acknowledging what we have here and what we have had baked in here, historically speaking, um, we want to constantly do like this rebrand and this shift and it's not really us, you know, like I don't, I remember us being, you know, a horse town in terms of like the Preakness. And at one point we were doing a Grand Prix here and I was like, I don't know if we're a racing town. I I don't know if that's a thing, (laughs) but at the same time I'm of a certain age. So maybe it was something that was here, but I think we really need to, uh, really have that civic pride of what it is here, accepting the warts and all of those things that aren't that aren't ideal that every city has, but really be emboldened and no, this is Baltimore. This is what we do here, and this is what we're about here. And in having historical landmarks such as you know being a railroad museum, you know being like this is one of those places we had X, Y, and Z that's happened on the this hollow ground. That's right, because there is only one birthplace. You know, right. And, you know, and there is only one place where there was the first street lamp because, you know, we had the energy. I mean, you just look at it. We had so much to offer. And I think if we take pride in that and remain authentic, you know, as you said, you've got to remain authentic to who you are and how you brand yourself. But um, and I think every instant, every city has to embrace their cultural institutions, because, you know, when you look at it from a perspective of if you're trying to attract a workforce, What are you going to do? Tell them there's nothing to do here? No, of course you're going to tell them there's these cultural institutions. So Mm -hmm. we really are important on, you know, and also just for there's been studies done showing that people who visit cultural institutions, uh, you know, actually have live longer. And, you know, I'm sure that's because they usually visit with other people or it's, you know, a place of peace. You know, there's a lot of different reasons in the study, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons to support it. And Baltimore has a lot of cultural institutions for a city of its size. You know, we really do. And then, you know, you look at the the premier medical that we have here, which, again, you know, Johns Hopkins University, but for the B&O, because Johns Hopkins was a major financier of the B&O. We like to say that over here. But for the B&O, there would be no Johns Hopkins. But, you know, but it's just, but it's fact we have all these amazing universities in a small space. And I think uh, if we focus on the collaboration and what's good, uh, just like in any place, then um, uh, we will really shine through because we have a lot of attributes. Totally, totally, 100%. So in these last two questions, before I get to those rapid fire questions that no one can escape. Uh, mm-hmm. So the ra- so, so um, our jobs and personal lives can kind of come together at times and it can be uh, – it can be some people describe as a uh, pervasive. You're like, ah, oh, I can't put the computer down. I got to answer this email. I'm in my phone. And um, is is that true for you? How do you put the laptop down? How do you kind of separate those? Well, the short answer is I don't. <laughs> but I, but before besides saying that, I will tell you that. Um, so when I was, uh, I got divorced when my kids were fairly young. So I was pretty much a single mother with a demanding career. 
And the way I looked at it was you got 24 hours in a day. Instead of trying to make this arbitrary, oh, you do work from nine to five and you can't do anything else but work. And then, you know, after five is your family time. I looked at it as I got 24 hours in my day. And that's what worked for me. So, you know, if we have doctor's appointments or schools or whatever it might have been, which are only available between nine and five, then do that. And if at eight, 10 o'clock at night, you get back to whatever memo you were writing or report you were reading, whatever it may be, that's when you do it. And I think providing people with the flexibility for what works for them, you know, it's all about, you know, having productivity and impact. You're only going to do that when it's working for you. So I, that, so for me, uh, maybe that's, you know, I mean, I hear you, everybody obviously needs to take breaks and cut off, but I don't do a, um, oh, you know, phone down because it's, you know, X time at night. That's just for me. I'm kind of the same way. And I, and I think, and I've always had this view, like having a, a day job that's, uh, at one, at an institution that may have been mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, you you have your hours, you have your day set up in a way. And I think, you know, with the mass exodus of people leaving and the work shortages and things, I think people have seen that there are other options. There are other ways to go about things. And I've always really been focused in, all right, I got, you know, a certain amount of hours in a day, you know, that are my most productive hours and it goes down. And looking at if I'm up first thing in the morning, I get in the office, let's say seven, eight, whatever, and I'm going to do eight hours, nine hours. That's my most productive time. It's like, but it may not be things coming in that really need my attention. So I can always come back to that stuff later. I'm very task and project oriented. And if I get an email late in the day that needs to be attended to, I might be working later to get that sorted, but if I need to go to the uh, to the the post office to mail off some merchandise or return some mics that didn't work, I, I can't wait. I can't, that's another day, and I've wasted that day. So I'm, we're on the same page. We're on the absolute same page. Right. So this is the last question I have for me because uh, for you because uh, I think we like to drop jewels here. We like to get insight from folks, and you're an executive director, and you've you know been in this in, in various roles of, of a leadership capacity. Um, what would you say um, maybe an important lesson that you've learned as a leader that you would want to share to the listeners? Oh, there are many. <laughs> One of them is you keep learning every day, right? You know, because uh, uh, you never can stop learning. Uh, I would think so. Like as a leader, some of the important lessons, I think uh, most people inherently don't like change. So when you are changing a direction, like I was brought in by our board to be a change maker here at the BNO, is you have to really always focus on the why. Why? Why are we doing something? It's kind of like Simon Sinek's why, but it's he was right. You know, people, you if people understand the why, then they're going to be bought in. You know, if they see the vision and what their role is, they're going to be bought in. Um, I think so. I think having that vision, explaining the why, um, I also think. The other thing I've always said is we can't shy away from failure. We have to, in some respects, brace it, embrace it. You know, it's not about blame game or anything along those lines because, you know, I like an entrepreneurial culture. You know, you want to take smart risks. But the fact is, is that if you never fail or don't do as well at something as you would like, that means that you played it safe the entire year. Yes. 
no risk, you nothing new. And I think that, um, you know, if you know that there's no, there's no, it's embraced, you know, we're not going to keep talking about the failure. We're going to learn from it and move on. But, and you're in that kind of culture, I think that's incredibly important for people. And so I um, have always thought that that's one of the best leadership traits is to show, is to show that, hey, we're doing new things. It works. It works. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's no big deal. But at least we tried. We move forward fast. Right. Yeah. You know, that was kind of the old expression. Yeah. And, and what I took from that is, again, you know, that we're on the same page. Um, you know, one of these these things that I learned um, just in conversations and this podcast, I, I, the, the, the jewels and the gems that are being dropped are just as much for me as it is for the listeners. And, you know, you hear don't bury your failures, don't bury your mistakes, you know, learn from them and you get something out of those and um, you get something out of your wins and your losses. And uh, um, yeah, you know, that's that's one of the key things that. You know, I think that's important, and um, seems like that's uh, something that you're you're taking from as well. Yeah, because you can't be afraid to try. You're not going to be very entrepreneurial. You're not going to break new ground if um, you play it safe all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that I think that's a good spot for us to uh, stop with the real questions. Now get to the okay. the rapid fire ones. Um, the rapid fire ones are fun. So uh, we're going to try to answer these as quickly as possible. I'm going to start off with a softball. Um, this is food related. Uh, salty or sweet? Oh, sweet. Okay. What is your favorite place locally to grab a bite? I actually, <laughs> I actually like the Paper Moon Diner because my kids love that. And I like the food there too, but we used to literally play I Spy there. So, uh, so even with them as, you know, adults, we sit there and play I Spy. So it has kind of some good memories for it's great. Um, favorite movie, and people always have trouble with this one. It can always be a movie that you most recently watched that you like. Hmm. That is a tough one because I, uh, I'm i one of these people I hate to admit it that tends to fall asleep in movies. So, uh, <laughs> so it's uh, let me think about that for a minute. Uh, well, um, I might have to. Oh, dear. You can pass. Wrong. You can pass it. You I might pass. pass. Let me. I'll okay. come back to it. I'm passing for the moment. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, what's a childhood memory for you that sticks out? Think back, like something that just like this was great. This was a great memory. If it's train related, fine, great. <laughs> but if it's not, uh, that's also <laughs> fine. But what's like a really cool, like maybe a childhood memory that relates to art or, or something that you're you're doing now? You're like, wow, this is who I grew up to be, and I never thought this would happen, or something along those lines. Hmm. Okay. Um, I was a first, when you first were talking, I was going to say the beach because <laughs> that's, you know, I, uh, I grew up in Florida and uh, we had one of the best uh, uh, beaches in the country where I was from. So I very much enjoyed the beach, but I will say uh, that's art related or industrial art related, which is where I am right now, because we consider ourselves also an art museum just as much as a history museum. Uh, so I would say that if I said that, if I say industrial art, I will tell you, Rob, that, um, I failed shop class. So <laughs> I not be that person. I don't know that that was my favorite memory, but I could never, I could never, I, I did end up making a uh, sugar scoop and I must've soldered that thing. With so much. I haven't thought of that in years, but, um, 
our guys in our restoration shop are true craftsmen, and um, they would never let me near any metal. <laughs> You're just looking at spoons. It's like, ah, you yeah. you beat me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so this is the last. This is the last uh, rapid fire question I got from for you, and uh, this one is more self serving, and it kind of goes with this theme of puns and pun related questions. Um, favorite mode of transportation: uh, plane, train, or automobile? Well, I should say train, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, I will say automobile uh, because I um, I enjoy driving. But um, but the train <laughs> brings more to American life, so I will end it with that. <laughs> no, that's that's great. I I think um, both uh, they're both on the ground, so that's a win. Um, I, I, at one point, I threw on air or boat, and because someone looked at me really weird, and I was like, "Never take a boat. Never take a boat anywhere." I'll tell you what, though. <laughs> Um, I did go to Antarctica, uh, the Antarctica Peninsula, and I took a boat across the Drake Passage and. You know what? You're not going to get seasick on a train. So. <laughs> exactly. And you get the quiet car. You get to be away from people. I, I, I love the train. Um, so uh, that's that's pretty much all I had for today. Um, and uh, I want to invite I want to thank you for being on this podcast. And two, I want to invite and encourage you to, um, you know, really plug, plug away social media, website, all that good stuff. Um, and thank you again for coming on to this podcast. Oh, no, thank you for having us. I mean, we're, um, I am and the BNO is, we're big believers in partnerships. I mean, all boats float, all trains float, however we want to, whatever words we want to use. But I mean, it is important. And I think as, uh, as we move forward. So thank you for having us. Absolutely. And, and what is the, uh, the website for folks that may want to check out upcoming events and things of the, of the like? It is borail.org. So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Chris Holan, Executive Director of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the BNO Railroad Museum. Um, and um, for, for Chris Holan, I'm Rob Lee saying that there is um, community, culture, art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it.